Good morning. How are you today? Good. Today is St. Patrick's Day. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. I don't know if you know that. Um, I did come down the hall past Hope Kids, and uh, I, I realized when I heard people or saw people pinching one another, I realized what was going on. And, and so you, you can turn to your neighbor. If they're not wearing green, feel free to pinch away, okay, this morning. Yeah, that might get you slapped. Uh, I don't know what that might. That might just light a fire that you've been wanting to light. I have no idea what that might do in your life, but, uh, you know, go for it. And, and so, no, we are glad that you are here. Uh, thank you, Travis, last week for taking us through chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Acts and giving uh, Reba and I this opportunity to spend some time with Grayson. We went to Florida, had a great time. Uh, Weather was 85 degrees, and it was wonderful. And I would say, I know, I know, I know, just had to throw that out there to you, right? And and I would say it was sunny, but actually for two days, a fog bank uh, rolled into where we were in St. Petersburg, Florida, and everything was fogged in. So it was really a a wonderful time, and uh, we weren't sure if we were in Florida or Seattle. We weren't quite sure, but it was a great time. It really was. Today, we go back to the book of Acts. This morning, grab your Bibles. What we're going to do is we're going to do this journey together through chapters um, 8 and 9 and 10. You say, Mark, are you reading and preaching all those chapters? No. But I'm just going to give you some highlights. In fact, maybe in a few weeks, we're going to come back and hit a few highlights also in those books, in those chapters together. But I want us to go on a journey for a moment. Then we're going to come back to chapter 9 at the end and kind of look at a character we find in, in the book of Acts chapter 9 together. But today we start in chapter 8. Actually, we start in chapter 1 for a moment, one verse, and then chapter 8. And today, simply confidence in the gospel. Now, uh, the, here's something. Here's a slide. I want to put up a slide for you. And, and this, thing is called, this thing is called a uh, magic eye. I don't know if you've ever had any luck with these things and how they look, but let me explain it to you. Embedded somewhere in there embedded somewhere in there is a 3D image. It's a 3D image. And, and so here's the thing. People claim, they claim that if they look at that long enough and they simply sort of take their eyes out of focus. And I've always thought that was kind of strange to sort of look at it with your eyes out of focus because I wear glasses to try to keep mine in focus, you know. And so do you look at that long enough that there's a three-dimensional image embedded in there? Now, I have to be real honest with you. I don't see squat, okay, just to put it out there, right, that I I don't see anything. I don't know if you can look at that long enough. I have no idea what is even in there this morning. Seth put that up there, so if it's something absolutely uh, that is inappropriate, then you've, you know, we'll throw Seth under the bus, okay? But uh, no, I love Seth, and I'm just kidding about that. So here is the thing. How many of you, by looking at that this morning, you can see, let me see your hands, you can see a 3D image in that, in that magic eye. Anybody? Anybody in the room? Anybody in the room? Okay. How many of you, when you normally look at those things like these magic eyes, you normally are able to pick out those images normally? Put your hand up if you're normally able to. No, keep your hand up. Keep them up. Don't keep them up. All the rest of us that are normal that have our hands down, look around. Okay. It's a conspiracy. It really is. Okay. It's a conspiracy to make you and I that are normal feel really bad and inferior because we can't see whatever kind of crazy image is in there. Now, we're not going to leave that up for the rest of the teaching because it will absolutely just draw all of your attention away from the Word of God. It will, yes. But there has been those moments. 
that I have been able to pick that out. You know, I've been able to look at that and think, oh, there it is. And, and, and it's, it's that moment that you think, wow, this is a great moment. I've actually succeeded in something in life, and I've seen this. You turn away for something, you look back, and you don't see it again. And it truly frustrates you. Now, here's what I find through the book of Acts. I find this glimpse of the church. It's not everything about the church, but it is a very powerful glimpse of what God wants us to see, to inspire us. I believe it draws us in to really dig and to study and to pray and and to look at ourselves as the church, as this collective body of individuals that function as the body of Christ, that it draws it and it gives us this very powerful glimpse of what the church is and what the church is called to become. It's, it's a glimpse. And to have this glimpse and to have this proper look at the church this morning, we have to start where the church starts, I believe. And that is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It is the hinge pin of that of what we know is the book of Acts. In fact, it is known as the bridge from the Gospels to that of the, the rest of the New Testament. And Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, and we've read it before so many times. I have to share it with you again. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so we know that already the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And how do we know that? Because we're here. That's exactly right. That we are a product of this very text and the fulfillment of this text from the words of Christ. We're sitting here with Bible in hand or device or whatever. You sang the songs that were so powerful this morning. You worship together. And what it is due to is due to that of the work of Christ first, absolutely. And that of the disciples being in obedient to what God said for them to do through Jesus. And that is in, in Luke chapter 24. He said, you go and you wait. And there in the city that you're going to be clothed with power from on high. It is them going and waiting and that of the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And he says that you will simply be filled with the Spirit and you will be my witnesses in that of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other most parts of the world. So we this morning are sitting here today as not we have to prove, it's not we have to prove anything. It's not that at all. But yet we are living proof. We are living proof today in so many ways, but in this very specific way, that when God promises something, God is able to fulfill His promises. And I think it's powerful, isn't it? That when we sit in this very building today, it is fulfillment of that very promise in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And so when we begin to look at Acts, we, we said before, when we first started this, that there's a debate, well, is Acts that of, it is a prescriptive writing. And that is that it tells us what to do. It kind of gives us all the guidelines about how to live out our faith. Or it is a descriptive writing. And that is that it tells us what God has been up to and what the disciples are doing. And we've learned that the amazing thing about the book of Acts is this, that it is both that a prescriptive and descriptive for our lives today. And, and that, I think that's a powerful thing. And so what we're going to do for a moment is we're going to go through this very descriptive side of Acts and we're going to look at the spreading of the gospel of the church the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8 together. And then it's going to bring us to this overwhelming conclusion of who God is and something about the character and the very nature of God. Last week, 
Travis, he covered 6 and 7. He talks about the stoning of Stephen. Stephen's dragged outside of the city, and he is simply pelted with rocks until he is dead. And, And up until this point, the persecution of that of the disciples and Christ's followers has been threats. Up until this point, the persecution has been, well, some jail time, yes. It has been some mild beatings, whatever that might be. It has been those kinds of things. But now it's crossed the line for the very first time because what we have is our very first martyr in the life of Stephen. It is the first time. And the results of that martyrdom in Jerusalem that day, the result of that, oh, it is how God uses all things for our good. It's a powerful thought. It's how he uses all things for our good. The first thing is this, it's the scattering of the church following Stephen's execution. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1, let me read to you. And Saul approved his execution. It's a statement that's given to you and I for later on a comparison of that of Saul at this point and later on what happens in the life of that of the Apostle Paul. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house. He was dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is important. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Could this be a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, because it specifically mentions Samaria. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said to, by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw the signs that he said. He did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who ha- had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Geographically, Samaria, about one or two days journey from that of Jerusalem. There's a gospel breakout. It's very similar to what has been happening in the city of Jerusalem. Philip's there preaching the gospel. Samaritans are confessing Christ. There are miracles taking place in that of Samaria. And the news reaches back to Jerusalem. And so the question they ask in Jerusalem, the leaders of the church is, is this the same gospel Is this the same breakout that is happening here in Jerusalem? So they have to check it out. Not that they doubt it, but they have to check it out. So what they send to Samaria is Peter and John to check things out. Could this be the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? And it is. We see this powerful move of Samaria as God had truly promised. And if you read down through chapter 8... At verse 25, it says, Even when Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, they began to stop in small villages of Samaria, and they preached the gospel, and people follow Christ. This is no longer just a Jerusalem phenomenon. It is no longer. It is breaking out just as Jesus said it would. And in that, we find great confidence in the Bible for all areas of our life. Then we go to chapter, then we continue on to chapter 9, and we find that of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and, and, the, and later he becomes the Apostle Paul. It is Saul who approves the crucifixion, or the, I'm sorry, the, the execution of Stephen. He's kicking in doors. He's dragging Christians out. He's binding them, the scriptures tell us. He's taking them back for some kind of trial in Jerusalem before that of the Sanhedrin or that of the high priest. He has the authority of Caiaphas, the high priest. He has papers in his hands to do these things. 
He's on this holy and religious mission as a student of Judaism to crush the spread of Christianity because Paul, which is Saul, truly believes in his heart that it is an affront to Judaism. It's an affront to true religion. And so he finds his way onto this road to Damascus, and all of a sudden, that what happens is that this bright light shines, and you can read this later for yourself, this bright light arrests him to the point that he is blind. It knocks him from his horse. And what Paul sees is Paul sees the risen Christ, and he hears the words of Jesus as he speaks to him. The rest of his party, they don't see Jesus, but yet they hear the words that are spoken to Paul that day, and he is converted. It's such a powerful scene. It's such a powerful scene. It is. Yes. And what you have to understand is, and and I get myself in this moment of, of my imagination, and Paul is there, and Jesus has revealed himself to him, and he was there, we believe, historically at the stoning of Stephen. He approved that, and he heard the words that Stephen spoke that day, and he must have thought to himself, Stephen was really speaking the truth. I thought it was all a lie, but Stephen truly was speaking the truth that day. Yes, and Jesus reaches him in such a powerful way because you have to understand a little bit about Saul. Saul was a student. He was a student in the synagogue. He was a rabbi. He knew the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament back and forth. He was an expert in those areas. And, and the reason I believe that God chose light is because what we understand about rabbis during that time is rabbis saw themselves as a guide to the blind. They saw themselves as a guide to the blind in their culture. And so what Jesus does, he comes down and he flips it on Saul. And all of a sudden, Saul becomes the blind and Jesus becomes the guide of his life. It's an amazing way to reach his heart. And what it said to me when I read that and I researched that was this. God meets us right where we are, doesn't he? He meets us in the moments of our doubt, in the moments of our struggles. He meets us in the moments of our weakness. He knows exactly what our questions are about him and how he works and his will and his direction for our life. And that is where God speaks to us. He meets us exactly where we are. This is not some ethereal kind of experience that we have with God when we come to him, nor after we come to him and we walk with him through life. It's not, but it's a real thing and a real power that works in our life. God meets you exactly where you are in life. He meets you there. Can I read the text about Paul? It's Acts 9, verse 20. It says, and this is what happens after his conversion. And he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. Understand who this person, Saul, had been before God transformed him, a persecutor of Christians. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowered him in a basket, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And listen, I don't blame them, you know. I don't blame them. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Yes, yes. It would be like someone who has persecuted us as the body of Christ. And all of a sudden on a Sunday morning, 
that, that the door opens, they walk in, and they sit down right beside you. You look over, you recognize them, you know who they are. Maybe their violence has touched a member of your family in the past, and you know, and, and they're sitting beside you, and they're worshiping, they're opening their scriptures. You're going to be skeptical. You're going to change seats, right? All of a sudden, you have to get up and you go to the restroom and you don't return. Is exactly right. And that's exactly the way they felt. Could this be the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 just before his ascension? Because look at verse 31 of chapter 9. So the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What an amazing thing. that I, I draw great confidence in knowing that when God promises something, God fulfills what he promises. He fulfills what he promises. Yes, if, if you continue through verse or chapter 9, there are signs and wonders to make Christ known. Look at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them, all, all, uh, he came down also to the saints who, who lived in Lydda, and, and there he found a man named uh, Aeneas, uh, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, uh, Jesus Christ heals you. I, I love Peter's words because this takes us back again to a previous meeting with Peter and the Jerusalem council after the, the lame man is healed at the gate. Beautiful. And, you know, and so they want to know who has healed this man because he's been lame for 40 years. So here's Peter and here's John. Here's the lame man that had been healed. It's that great scene that we know from Scripture where Peter says, I don't have any silver and I don't have any gold, but what I have give to you and rise and walk. And so here is Peter standing before the Jerusalem council, and he's giving account for who healed this. And he said, hey, to them, he said, hey, it was Jesus, the one that you crucified. That's the one that has healed him. And that's what he's making plain right now before all of them. He's simply saying, hey, it's not me, but this is simply Jesus. And that's why he says Jesus Christ heals you. He wants them to know that all the glory belongs to God. And so what he says is, rise, make your bed. It sounds so effortless, doesn't it? Why? Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit and not of man. Because Peter is clothed with power from on high. We understand that. And immediately he arose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon came, saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And then later on in that chapter, he comes to a house where there is a woman who has been sick and ill for some time. Her name is Tabitha. And, and so she has died. They hear that Peter is in Joppa. So they send for Peter to come to pray. They've already cleaned her up after this illness. They've laid her in an upper room. She is dead. What is, happens? Peter shows up. The mourners are there in the room with Tabitha. That Peter says, hey, everybody out of the room. He kneels down. He prays over her. He speaks these powerful words through the power of Christ within his life. And the scripture says that all of a sudden that she opens her eyes and she saw Peter. And when she saw Peter, she sets up and then he presents her alive. Could this be the fulfillment of what Jesus has promised? Is it really true that Jesus is able to fulfill the things that he has promised? 
at that time in our life today. And verse 42 of chapter 9, and it, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Could this be the fulfillment? Can I take you one more place for just a moment before we really get to what I want to talk to you about? And it's chapter 10. You see, we're really going through them really quick, aren't we? Yes, uh, it's amazing. We'll just keep going till the end, okay? But no, let's chapter 10. Here's what happens. The gospel crosses ethnic lines for the very first time in chapter 10. There's this Gentile uh, centurion. His name is Cornelius. He's of this Italian cohort. And, and he's a devout man who fears God. He's rejected the pagan worship of Rome. He is. And, and so what happens is an angel comes to him. He has this vision. And the angel says to him that God has heard your prayers. God has heard your prayers. What I love about this is this, that you don't have to be perfect for God to hear your prayers. That you don't have to be a theologian for God to hear your prayers. And so God hears his prayers and God says, hey, here's what you need to do. That Peter is in a town uh, close to you. You need to simply send for Peter. You need to send for him. He's in Joppa. And, And so... How do you find Peter in this big city of Joppa? I love this. The angel gives him Peter's address. Yes, God is very detailed, isn't he? Yes, he gives him his address. Uh, It's the early version of really GPS, is it not? Yes, and so he gives him his address. And so the next day, God begins to prepare Peter's heart. What does God do? God gives now Peter a vision. It's the sheet that comes down from heaven. You can read it later on. The sheet that comes down from heaven, and God addresses the things that Jews that say are clean and unclean. And what God says to Peter is this, that everything that I have made is clean, that nothing is unclean because of the Jews' view of that of the Gentiles. They viewed them as being unclean creatures. And so God is saying, hey, what I have made is clean. And God addresses this in a way that Peter would understand it because he addresses it through this dietary and that of food restrictions. God meets us right where we are. I love that. That God meets us and speaks to our heart right where we are in the area of our understanding. And so Peter understands and he goes to Caesarea the next day. Chapter 10, verse 44. And here's what happens when Peter shows up at Cornelius, the centurion's house. Here's what happens. And while Peter was still saying these things, he's been preaching the gospel to them. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews who came with Peter, were amazed. Why? Because God is moving in the life of Gentiles. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing they, they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to return for, re, remain for some days. The gospel is no longer bound to Jerusalem. you got to see this. Now there's, it's a church in Samaria, Joppa, Lydda, Caesarea, at the house of the centurion, Uh, Cornelius, it's spreading to all the known world. It's not just geographically spreading, but it's spreading across uh, ethnicity lines, ethnic lines. And what I wanted to say, because I just felt like I had to go through all this with you for this reason, to say this one thing. Nothing is too difficult for God. That's a lot that I gave you to sort of digest in a few moments. It is. I, I, I maybe did all of that in about 
15 or 16 minutes or so, or, or 17, ah, maybe 20, okay? Be, you know, be open about this thing. Maybe, but I did all that, and it's a lot to digest. But it gets to the point where we have to wrap our mind around this, that nothing is too difficult for God. And you have to take that out of the book of Acts, and you have to lay that over your own life, your own heart, your own mind, your own spirit, over your family, over all the things in your life. And you have to say, yes, when God says something, God means that, and God fulfills that. And it may take some time. It may take some journey. There's going to be some pain in the process, absolutely, as we know that in the lives of those believers. But there is nothing too difficult for God. And I thought about this. Where did all this start? Does it start in the book of Joel where simply there's a prophecy about the coming of the Holy Spirit? No, it doesn't start there. Does it start with the appearing of the angel to Mary the Virgin when the angel says to her, hey, you're going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and then you're going to carry the Redeemer of all mankind? It doesn't start there. Does it start at the journey of that of Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem? No. The visitation by the angel to the shepherds? Absolutely not. Does it start at the manger? No, it does not. Does it even start at the life, the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Christ? It does not. It does not. No. Does it start at the ascension? Does it start at Acts chapter 1, verse 8? And I tell you, it doesn't start there. It doesn't start at the day of Pentecost. It doesn't start. But where it starts is at that moment of initial sin way back in the book of Genesis is where it starts. It's how God responds to the brokenness of mankind in the book of Genesis. That moment when God shows up after the initial sin and he finds Adam and Eve hiding and he says to Adam, Adam, who told you you were naked? Is what he said. Who told you you were naked, Adam? Because understand this, shame, regret, and guilt was never my plan for you, and I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. And so as we said a few weeks ago, God the great painter, he paints on this canvas of history, revealing his redemptive plan for all of mankind. It starts in the book of Genesis. You think, oh, the promise is good in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's good. We see all this happening right after that. But this even, this even excites me more. I mean, there's something inside of me this morning. I may be standing with my feet on the floor, but there's something inside of me jumping up and down. It really is. You can't see it, but it's there. Because it's exciting that it starts at Genesis 1 and 8, and we see it fulfilled throughout that of, of, of Judea, Samaria, and on the ends of the earth, we, we see all of that. But when we realize that this starts at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head. Oh, what he's saying to this is, Satan, one day that I will send one who will crush you, and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, he will come as a man fully God, fully man, the incarnate Christ, that he will live in this world. He will suffer like you and I suffered. He will die. He will be buried. But that's not the end. It's just the beginning. Because if I promise I will fix this, I will fix it. Because Acts chapter 3 and 15, we've said this so many times, it's the proto-evangelum. It is the first gospel. The gospel began in Genesis. It begins in Genesis. God begins to work to fix the mess of mankind there. 
We see the promise of the Holy Spirit in the book of Joel. We see the, Jesus at the end of Luke saying, Go and wait until you're clothed with power from on high. We see the promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We see the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. We see the Holy Spirit working, through the, working His power and might through that of the disciples. And we see them spreading the gospel throughout Jeru- Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world, earth, after that of the execution of Stephen. It is God fulfilling His promise because nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing. But, but I, don't know, I don't know if God can handle this in my life. What? Wait a minute. Go back and go back. No, listen. When this video goes up this week, listen to it. Listen to Travis's first, then listen to this because they tie together. And understand this. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too difficult for Him. When He promised us in Genesis 3 that He would fix the brokenness of man, We see the fulfillment of that throughout time. And what it says to me is this, that God, He is infinitely powerful, infinitely powerful, but He is simultaneously, intensely personal in my life and your life. He is. And so it brings me to to how I'm going to, we're going to pull all this together. Because He is intensely personal, that in the middle of all of the signs and wonders, in the middle of all the things that are happening, in the middle of the conversion of Paul, the light, all of these kinds of things, he gives us personalities that you and I can connect with. He gives us a man in chapter 9 by the name of Ananias. He is not the same guy, Ananias and Sapphira, from the previous chapter, the husband and wife, because I want to tell you that God took care of them and they're buried out in the back of the church. Isn't that right? Yes, because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And, And so it's not that, but it's another Ananias. And so grab your Bibles again. It's Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Can I share a few points about him before we pray together? And because this is about confidence that we find that God is, God is powerful and God fulfills his promise. And we find confidence in the spreading of the gospel. That there is confidence in God's calling. Yeah, after Paul's conversion, he's led as a blind man into Damascus. The city that he was going to to persecute Christians, he's led there as a blind man. And the word of the Lord comes to this man, Ananias, who lives in Damascus. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here am I, Lord. It's the same response that we find back in Isaiah chapter 6, when God says to Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And what does Isaiah say in Isaiah chapter 6? Here I am, send me. It's the same thing. Listen, it's not about geography. It's not that God doesn't know where Ananias is when he calls him. It's not that at all. It's not. But it's more about Ananias' heart, and he knows the character and the nature of God. It's trust and confidence because he's seen what God has been doing. Verse 11, And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man Tarshish named Saul. Now listen, Saul has a reputation. It would be like you, and I realize that this figure in history is already dead, but we can connect with this. It would be like God coming to you and say, hey, I want you to go find Osama bin Laden. That's what I want you to do, right? Yes, and I want you to go and minister to him. You're going to have some thoughts about that, some long thoughts about that. It's exactly right. And so Ananias, he's this devout disciple 
chapter 22, says that he's well-respected of all Jews in Damascus. And now he's part of this double vision. God has spoken to him. God has spoken to Saul. And so he responds with, here I am, Lord. It's confidence in God. It is a great confidence and trust in God. He's seen God work. He knows God's nature. So he has a confidence, even when that assignment is difficult. Because something I have learned about discipleship and that of being obedient and what God calls you to do is this. Discipleship is both purposeful and it is also costly. It is costly. It is. It is a risk. It's not a gamble. It's a risk based, I think, on what I would call a known return. Because I know that nothing is too difficult for God. It is. But it's a risk that is based upon a known return. Yes. Because if God says it, then I know that God is going to fulfill it. But I, I, I don't know what the pain is between that moment of God speaking to me and God fulfilling it, the pain for my life and what it's going to take me through. I don't, I'm not sure of all of those things. So I had this thought. It's a question for you this morning. If your house is on fire, okay, if your house is on fire, and you escape the fire, but you realize that you have left your goldfish, your pet goldfish, still inside your house, how many of you will run back into your flaming house to save your goldfish? Now, that's a question. Can, can we have some hands? How many of you run back into your house to save your goldfish? Raise your hand. Anybody? Oh, we have one. We have two. Okay. We have a couple of people that would. That's interesting. I knew somebody would. The animal lovers in the room. That is wonderful. That's good. Yes. Personally, it would just be a fish fry is all it would be for me, right? Yes. That's true. So, but here's the other scenario. You escaped your burning house, and you realize that one of your children remains in the house. How many of you would go back in for that child? Raise your hand. Sure, it's a no-brainer, right? Somebody just said up front, depends which one. Isn't that, did I hear that right? Yeah, I, I thought I did. Yes, that was Travis, I think. Of course, when you have 20 or 30 kids, you know, I don't know. Didn't have that many. Yeah. Has close. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's like a no-brainer, right? It, it, it really is. And so here's, I think this is the way that Ananias is thinking. The risk portion of that is, well, what's going to happen to me? I don't think there's a distrust in what God can do because he's so quick to answer, God, here I am. Like, okay, God, whatever, what, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. But what I love about this text is it doesn't remove the human element. It doesn't because God knows us. So my next thought was this, that we have to rediscover confidence and graces for all. Because look at verse 11. We read it again in verse 12. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he's praying. Remember who Saul is. Remember who Saul is. Now, he's, he becomes the Apostle Paul. We know that. But remember who he is. He is a devout follower of the law. He knows the law front and back. He knows everything about Judaism. He's the, he, is, he is sworn to eradicate Christianity because prior to this conversion in his life, he has viewed Christianity as some radical cult that was founded by some insane leader by the name of Jesus. And he is to purge his land of that belief. Because he truly believes in what he does. So he's always been a praying man. 
He's praying to Jesus the Messiah now. And verse 12 said, and he, and, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias. Know what, Ananias, I'm setting this up for you. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. My thought is this. If I'm Ananias, I would say, okay, God, I know that you're Lord. I know that you're capable of doing all these kinds of things. I've seen those things with my own eyes, how the church is spreading through the known world. But I've heard about the reputation of this guy. He's caused a lot of pain to a lot of people. Remember your servant Stephen, Lord. Maybe you have forgotten him. You know, Remember what happened to him? This was condoned by this very man. And I think this is my favorite part of this whole story because what Ananias simply asks God is, God, are you sure? God, are you sure? And what I love about our God is this, that God is big enough for you and I to ask questions. He is absolutely big enough, as that of being our perfect Father, for you and I to even say things like that to Him. God, are you sure? Because you have to, in you look at this text, you realize that all Ananias has been told about Saul thus far is he's praying. He has not been told by God about his conversion yet. God just says, go, is exactly what God does. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, but Ananias answered, Lord, is exactly what he says. I have found, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has, and he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. I love it. God's direct, isn't he? God doesn't play around. Go. I want you to go. You got to go. God never says, oh man, I should have thought this through, shouldn't I, Ananias? Yeah, I kind of forgot. This was Saul, and and I I shouldn't put you in this bad situation. I apologize for making you uncomfortable by asking you to go to Saul and to lay hands on him that he would say, no, no, that is not what God does at all. That's not what, but what God does. Not only does he show grace to Saul, but he shows some powerful grace to Ananias. Because God gives Ananias something tangible to anchor to because God could have said go and that was it. But here's what God says. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That the path is not always easy, Ananias. And you need to understand that because this is not an easy call for your life. That what God is saying, reminding us, I think, is that he is, yes, an infinitely powerful God, that nothing is too difficult for him, but yet he is intensely personal in our life, that he approaches us with grace and with mercy, with kindness, he's direct as a father should be, but yet what he does, and the only way I could put this into words, is he throws Ananias a bone, is what he does. He throws him a bone because he loves him. Because he's committed to Ananias' life. He's committed to completing what he started in Ananias' life, just as he is for you and I. Because God didn't have to say anything but go. But he said, no, here's why I want you to go, Ananias. Here's why, because this is my chosen instrument. That's the character and the nature of God. That's his mercy. And that's his kindness in our lives, that he is committed to completing what he has begun. 
And the last thought I had, and we finish with this, it's confidence, what we find, we find confidence in gospel community here. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands upon him, he said, Brother Saul. He calls him Brother Saul. He said, Brother Saul. I tell you, there has to be something that's taking place in Ananias' life for him to do that. Only God can make that transformation. It's truly gospel community. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized. Historically, we believe that Ananias baptized Saul and taking food, he was strengthened. And what this says to you and I, what it says to me so powerfully, that there's no failure, there's no sin, There's no mess up in any of our lives. There's nothing greater than the grace of God. There's nothing greater than the forgiving power of Christ in all of our lives. Jesus has always been and he always will be enough for us. Always will be enough. That he doesn't need our assistance in the area of grace. And he doesn't need our assistance in the area of forgiveness with our lives. He doesn't necessarily have to have our assistance in trying to clean up everything about our lives before we come to him. That is not it at all. Because he comes to us. He is the one that chooses us. We bring nothing to the table. And it's absolutely freeing for every one of us in this room. That we bring nothing to the table this morning. Because here's what God does. We've read this verse, but I read it again in verse 20. And immediately talking about Saul, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who had made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confronted the Jews who lived in or confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Wow. All I can say this morning is there is nothing too difficult for God. Nothing. We have taught from Genesis to Acts this morning. And we see the same thing and the same message. That nothing is too difficult for our God. How does the church respond to this? I think it's very interesting. Because the church, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they come together. And they say, what's going on? You know? Is this move in all these other cities, specifically, is this move among the Gentiles, is it the real thing? Is it what, is it the same thing that has happened in Jerusalem? They begin to debate it because it's, it's mind-blowing what God is doing. And so they call Peter to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And they say, Peter, you have to explain to us, and in, verse, in chapter 11, and I'm just paraphrasing, you have to explain to us what's happening here. Is it really possible for Jesus to forgive 
and for Gentiles to be converted. Tell us about this Cornelius thing, Peter, because we just can't wrap our mind around it. And so Peter says in chapter 11 and verse 15, he says, as I begin to speak, talking about what happened at Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Just as we had our Pentecost, he said, they had theirs. Just as we had ours, Saul had his. And verse 16 says, And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God, and this is, I think, one of the most powerful verses that I have ever read from the book of Acts, other than maybe Acts 1 and verse 8, If then God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he says. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? I tell you today, through this trek that we have taken this morning, that nothing is too difficult for God. But yet some of you have deemed things in your life this morning too difficult. You may not have said those words, but you are living that today. It's a relationship in your life. It's a discipleship opportunity. You've had the call from God as Ananias had the call from God but yet you've given God every excuse. Maybe it's a boldness, a struggle in that area of boldness in your life to share Christ with others. Maybe you've deemed your future too difficult for God because it seems that you have no future. And in reality, no, God has a plan for all of us. And God is working that plan. So what or whom have you deemed too difficult for him? Because what we find in the gospel is great confidence in who he is and what he does. And that he does all for his glory and for our joy. So rest in that today. Nothing is too difficult for him. Would you bow your heads for a moment, Father? This journey has brought us to a conclusion this morning, God. Something that we know in our heads, but yet we find difficult to submit into our hearts and our spirits. So, Father, by only by the power of your Holy Spirit illuminating and working in our hearts and our lives today that you bring great light to the truth of the Scriptures. That through this journey from Genesis through that of currently the book of Acts, that we see that nothing is too difficult for you. No moment in our life, no situation, no circumstance no unknown, 
is too difficult for you. No opportunity, Father, no moment that you call us. And we can think of every excuse, Lord, why this would not work. Or we may even say to you, Lord, are you sure? But yet in the end, we have to come back to the truth that nothing is too difficult for you. So today, Lord, may we take that truth. May we lay it over those events, those personalities, those relationships, those moments of our lives. The uncertainty of our life. May we take that truth that nothing is too difficult for you and we lay that over our life and we find rest in that this morning. And we trust you. We trust you, Father. We trust you for the forgiveness of our sins. We trust you for the healing of our lives for the restoration of our relationships, for reconciliation. Father, we trust you for those areas of our life that truly need a miracle. We trust you for those moments of discipleship when you have called us to go to maybe a Saul of our life. Or maybe just a coworker, or a person that we sit on the same pew with at church. But we trust you today, God, because you have declared to us, without any reservation, nothing is too difficult for you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness in our life this morning. Would you stand with us this morning? If you are not following Christ, what an amazing opportunity during this song for you to make that choice today. That he is greater than any sin in your life and any failure in your life. So today you confess that you're a sinner. You understand your need for him. And you invite him into your life and you confess him as the savior of your life. You accept his forgiveness. for all of us in this room who struggle with those moments of is God enough or is if God big enough or is God capable that you take this time to take these truths and you lay them over those moments and you give them to God so during this song if you want to pray at your seat wonderful I do invite you to come into just spend a moment in prayer with Christ Proclaim that over your life that nothing is too hard for him. And allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you this morning as only.